Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode I'm joined by John Allen, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, to discuss the recent violence in Israel and Gaza, the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, and the illegal occupation and expansion of settlements more broadly, the need for elections in the Palestinian Authority and to limit the violent role that Hamas plays, and how Canada can constructively play a role towards peace going forward. As a relevant aside, in between the time we recorded and posted this episode, our federal government has committed $25 million in humanitarian support for Palestinian civilians and peace-building initiatives in the region. Now, a bit of background on John, who is not only our ambassador to Israel from 2006 to 2010, but he's also spent a lifetime in the Foreign Service. He's now a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs. He serves on the Advisory Council of the New Israel Fund. And he's recently been public with his views on the path to peace for Israel and Palestine through interviews with the CBC and in an op-ed in the Globe and Mail. He brings an interesting perspective as one directly involved in foreign policy, a strong defender of a two-state solution and the state of Israel, but also a critic of Israel's occupation, settlements, and discrimination against Palestinians. John, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to chat about these pretty complex issues. And it's a good comment to start with because it's in some ways hard to know where to start. We have a ceasefire, thankfully now, but no resolution to the underlying issues. We saw an escalation and you can point to different aspects of what took place, whether it was the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, police forces in in Al-Aqsa, barricading of the Damascus Gate followed by what you've rightly called the political opportunism of Hamas and firing indiscriminately thousands of rockets and and taking civilian innocent lives. And then Israel invokes its right to self-defense and speaks of deterrence. And there are open questions and concerns, I think, around the proportionality of that response. You've written about how we got to the place of of increased escalation and the need for de-escalation, but also about the need to address some of these underlying root causes. Yeah. You can look at what happened in the lead up to the most recent flare up. And and let's remember, this is the fourth time we've had a Gaza conflict. Uh, There was one when I was there. There was one in 2014. And this is the fourth. The immediate causes centered around Jerusalem. And they centered around the fact that all these activities were happening during Ramadan. And there was a confluence of events that sparked uh, the war. Some of these events were you know, there was coincidence. It so happened that the court case on Sheikh Jarrah happened to fall at the time of Ramadan. And the efforts to barricade Damascus Gate did not. Questionable why they chose to barricade Damascus Gate and prevent young Palestinians from gathering there as they usually did. Some people argue that there had been demonstrations. The fact that Itamar Ben-Gavir, a radical, almost fascist MK, set up a temporary office uh, right outside the Sheikh Jarrah homes was clearly an added provocation that was organized really to set a flame to what was going on. So there there were all of these events. Some of them were proximate to what happened. Others have a long history. The evictions in Sheikh Jarrah are part of a much larger issue, which is what is going to be the capital of the Palestinian state if there is going to be a capital of the Palestinian state. And all of the negotiations that um, the parties have had have essentially agreed 
up until Bibi Netanyahu's term in office, that East Jerusalem would be the Palestinian state and West Jerusalem would be the capital of the state of Israel. And what we've seen over the course of the last 12 years is an increasing effort to build and expand settlements in and around East Jerusalem, a number of which are having the the effect of cutting off the West Bank from East Jerusalem. So not only are they occupying the land that would be the capital, but they are effectively trying to disturb the link between the capital and the vast majority of the people in the West Bank. And that's what Sheikh Jarrah, in a sense, represents in the bigger picture. In the smaller picture, you know, it goes all the way from a real estate dispute to what really happened, which was in 48, 750,000 Palestinians left, and they are legally prevented from reoccupying their lands, whereas the Jews are entitled to reoccupy their property that they lost at some point in time between you know, 1920 and the present. So there's, you know, those are kind of the underlying uh, problems there. It was well stated when you said, whatever the legal technicalities, the evictions are perceived correctly by Palestinians as part of a larger effort to surround the old city with Jewish-only settlements. And it does, when you hear a response back to say it is a real estate dispute, and this is before the courts, the appropriate response seems to be, Yes, but if you consider the equities and, and fairness in this dispute, is really in a perversion of the rule of law in many respects. I wouldn't say it's a perversion of the rule of law. Uh, I mean, you know, states pass laws, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'd say it's what it really is is an attempt to eliminate the possibility of a two-state solution using the law to do so. I mean, the the law also could have allowed the Israeli government to expropriate that property and lease it back to the Palestinians, provide the legal title holders with whatever compensation they thought they deserved, and uh, allow the Palestinian families to continue there. That was another illegal possibility. But uh, you know what I really see here, and, and we shouldn't hide it, this is not legal. This is part of a grand scheme by the current government, the current government in Jerusalem, essentially to eliminate the possibility of East Jerusalem being the capital. And it's part of a larger context, which is we're not really interested in a two-state solution. I don't know if, if you recall, but Trump's peace plan, so-called peace plan, uh, which basically favored Israel on every aspect of the five final status solutions, created a Palestinian capital, but it was on the other side of Bethlehem and was a conglomeration of three small villages, had nothing to do with where Palestinians believed their capital should be and where the majority of Palestinians in East Jerusalem are. So this is, you know, there's nothing hidden here and people shouldn't kid themselves about that. You you also wrote, how long did Israel think Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza would put up with military rule and military courts House demolitions and evictions, settlement expansion and daily settler violence ignored by the IDF, and severe restrictions on their movements. How long would the Arab residents of Jerusalem accept their third-class status? For how long do Israelis think the situation is sustainable? And when we look at Sheikh Jarrah as one component of it, but really the occupation writ large and this continued expansion of settlements, 
how do we go about addressing that, which is a huge part of the root cause? We can talk about elections too. We can talk about the need for a good faith Palestinian partner. But on the Israeli side, how do we go about addressing the Human Rights Watch report recently called an apartheid state that it obviously sets off great reactions? What needs to happen to address these underlying issues of occupation and discrimination? Let me just start by saying I'm Jewish. I have a sister that lives in Israel. My wife is the child of Holocaust survivors. I get Israel. I mean, I I understand that Israel was in one sense as a result of the Holocaust plopped into that area in 48. And I understand in the new understanding of colonialism and anti-colonialism that Israel was in some ways the last colonial state, but it was also the savior for the Jewish people post-Holocaust when not Arabs, not Palestinians, but Europeans killed 6 million Jews. So I believe in the state of Israel I support the state of Israel, and I support a two-state solution, not a one-state solution, and we can, we can get to that. I also want to say that I am not naive about how we got here. Recall 1948, partition, land divided between not the Palestinians, because there was no Palestinian grouping at that time, but Arabs and Jews. And what happened? The Israelis agreed to the partition and they were attacked by five Arab states. Then we move to, let's say, 67. Another attack by Arabs, more than five at that point, Iraq and others who joined in. Israel defends itself. Great victory by Israel and great victory in the diaspora. Israel, the David, defends itself. But then, because of the occupation which takes place in 67, where they occupy, they win the West Bank, back from Jordan. They win Gaza from Egypt. They retake Jerusalem. The David becomes the Goliath. Over time, the David becomes the Goliath. And despite people like Ben-Gurion and others saying, give that land back, they don't give it back. They occupy it. Occupation is usually something that lasts a year, two years. We're 50 years down the line. But it doesn't really stop there. I'm trying to get into the Israeli psyche. There's two things here. There's bad leadership and there's an Israeli psyche. So you've got 67, the beginning of the occupation and the beginning of the change in world's perception. Then you've got 73, the Arabs attack on Yom Kippur and the Israelis lose a lot of soldiers, way more than 67. They're not prepared, okay? So you can just imagine the view of Israelis, Israeli Jews, about their Arab neighbors. So that's 73. Then you have, over time, efforts to try and bring peace. And fast forward, you have the first intifada, not too many people killed, the Oslo process, which is meant to step-by-step get to a two-state solution. It doesn't really pan out the way it was supposed to. Great frustration on the part of the Palestinians who are now a Palestinian authority, a group of people who are ready to move to self-determination, and you end up with the second intifada. And and I want to bring this up because this is so crucial to the Israeli psyche. A thousand Israelis are killed in terrorist bombings. Many more Palestinians are killed in the response. But we are talking about Israeli kids in cafes, in discos, on buses, 
just bloody violence. And this, uh, I remember being in Israel as ambassador, and I kept running into ministers, and I would be arguing in favor of the two-state solution and criticizing the settlements that was Canadian policy. And man, they would get back to the second intifada so fast. We were partners. I was a partner with the equivalent of the minister of defense or the attorney general would tell me we were working together and boom. Now, is this an excuse for what's going on? No, it's not an excuse, but it helps to explain why when you get a leader like Bibi Netanyahu, whose father was opposed to a two-state solution, and he has been opposed to a two-state solution. If you get somebody there whose constant uh, refrain is, there is no partner for peace, you can't trust the Palestinians. So he's got Iran on the outside, and he's got the Palestinians on the inside, and they are basically, he drills into Israelis, who by this time have never been in the West Bank don't see how the Palestinians are being treated. He drills into them, there's no partner. And then he begins to manipulate the situation by taking his credible partner, Fatah, the PA, Mahmoud Abbas, and belittling him while allowing funds, et cetera, et cetera, to go to Hamas. He wants there to be two separate entities because as long as there's two separate entities, he can tell every visiting leader, you see, we want peace, but they can't even get their act together. So there's your backdrop. So I just wanted to say that because the average Israeli, two things, has fear in them. I mean, some people would say there's the fear of the Holocaust, and then there's the current four or five conflicts. And if you have a leader who says to them, look, like Rabin, the way to get out of this is to make peace with these people, to protect ourselves, secure ourselves, but get this monkey off our backs. Or you have a leader who says, there's no partner, forget about it. But the problem with that, that second one is, what's the end game? If there is no partner, how long are you going to occupy these people? And that's my last paragraph in the globe. How long do you think the Palestinian people are going to allow this occupation to continue before there is a massive blow-up. And the, the very new element in this last blow-up was the intercommunal violence in Israel, because the Arab Israelis, they're not exactly second-class citizens, but the nation-state law that was passed a couple of years ago does priorize Jewish Israelis. They are somewhat second-class citizens. They don't get as much money for education. They don't get as much money for housing. They don't get as much money for policing. They finally rose up in solidarity with their brethren in Gaza and, and in the West Bank and said, you know, now a lot of it was extremist. And then you got in the, the radical Israeli extremists. And I don't think that the intercommunal violence will continue. And I think they'll be able to bring things together. But it's an indication it's an indication that this can't go on forever. And it represents, too, the different conversation we need to have about public safety and security in a way that in the Canadian context, you do have further right politicians who will bang away at tough on crime and say it's about public safety and security. If we take a really short-term view and only focus on retribution and punishment and tough on crime, we actually make our communities less safe. 
if we don't take that restorative justice view, which recognizes the reality that people are going to be out in the community at some point. And so public safety is better served by a fair, more restorative justice approach. And, and so, too, when we look at the peace and security of the Israeli people, that this continued occupation puts that peace and security at risk in the long run. Absolutely. And to take your analogy further, if you're going to treat Blacks in the United States and Indigenous people in Canada as targets, if we end up with 30% of our jails in Canada with Indigenous people and the same numbers in the United States, you've got a real problem here. And as you just as you said, using police force without dealing with the underlying causes of the racism and the poverty and the drug use, etc., then it's just a failed game. And, and that's what I'm saying about Israel. Whatever the background, however many times the Palestinians are alleged to have missed an opportunity, because that's the famous phrase, the Palestinians, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. That's what the Israelis like to say. And there is some truth to it. There is some truth to it. There were deals, 48 for the Arabs. I mean, had they taken... If they taken partition, they would have 46% of the land. They're down to 22% of the land now, maybe even a little less, depending on the settlements. Had they taken the Bill Clinton, Camp David Accords, Arafat and Barak, I, I don't put all the blame on the Palestinians for that. I don't really care anymore. We've had 12 years of no effort to make peace. When people tell me that they've tried, the, the Israelis have tried, I say to them, try again. You are the asymmetric power. They are not an existential threat. I mean, Iran could be an existential threat. You lost 12 people in this war. You lose 12 people on the highways of Israel every day. And on that front towards peace and the role that Canada can potentially play or ought to play, I have spoken to Minister Garneau to encourage active participation by Canada towards peace. I've spoken to both representatives recently from the Palestinian Authority representative and also Israeli representative in Canada. I've spoken about the need for elections with the Palestinian representative, spoken about the need to end continued expansion of settlements with the Israeli representative. And I wonder how Canada can play an effective role in these conversations. And maybe as we do bring that conversation around reconciliation to bear and say, we need Israel to move as Canada has towards reconciliation, imperfect as it is. How, how do you see Canada's role, both recently, the statements that have been made, but also going forward, the role that Canada can and, and should be playing? I would say that since the then leader of the Liberal Party, Michael Ignatieff, made what the conservative Jewish community said were intemperate statements about Gaza, the Liberals have essentially been put into a position where they're scared to say anything against Israel. And I've made that known to people on the 10th floor. I've said there are progressive groups, progressive Jewish groups in Canada, J-Space, the New Israel Fund, Canadians for Peace Now, people like me who support Israel strongly, who see the need for Israel, but who are not afraid to criticize Israel when Israel deserves criticism. Because, frankly, just saying nothing or praising Israel or claiming that all criticism of Israel is either anti-Zionist or anti-Semitic 
is not helping the situation. I think that uh, Bob Ray's statement, most recent statement at the UN and Minister Garneau's statements are a clear improvement over what was perceived certainly by me and by the Arab community and by progressive Jews as being unbalanced. It's about recognizing that there are issues on both sides that have to be dealt with. I don't think Canada should overestimate what it can do here. The Israelis, frankly, don't trust the Europeans and they don't trust anybody else. And they don't trust the Americans, but they have no, no, no alternative but to deal with the Americans. And on the Hamas, Palestinian side, it's really Qatar, Egypt, Turkey, who are the big players there. You've got to have people that can try and influence Fatah on the one side and put pressure on Hamas on the other, etc. So we don't have a big role, but joining together with the Europeans and with the Americans, because you now got a president who is much more in line with where we are and has a strong democratic uh, minority who's pressing him, we should be re-advocating what is on our website. Settlements are illegal. We oppose the occupation. We favor strongly a two-state solution. We've had it on our website. It took a letter from a number of us and then a question to Justin Trudeau at the time of annexation, threatened annexation, for him to come out and say, we oppose annexation. The world was going crazy when Trump and uh, Bibi were together moving towards annexation. There was no statement by the Canadian government until a CBC uh, French language journalist posed the question. So it's easy for me to say, you got an election coming up. In that interview, when they asked me about sanctions, what I should have said was that there's between 750,000 and a million Arabs in this country, and they are so disunited and so fighting amongst themselves that there is no single voice going to the Liberal Party or any party on what the rights should be in this conflict. And there's 350,000 Jews, and their voice is heard in the PMO and on the 10th floor on a daily basis. And the interview you referenced there is the one you did this this last week with the CBC. People were saying, "What sanctions? What? What? You know? Why? You know? Sanctions on Crimea? Sanctions on on China? Those other sanctions were multilateral. Everybody was doing them, and Canada generally doesn't impose sanctions alone. Although with Christia and Ukraine, we were prepared to go alone. I do take the general concern seriously. This notion of singling out Israel. My response back is to say Israel holds itself up as a democracy, ascribes to human rights and these universal values. And it's on those grounds that criticism is warranted, that we would expect the same criticism here in Canada, where we fall short of or depart from the values that we ostensibly hold. And so this isn't we are selectively picking on Israel from a Canadian perspective, but certainly from my perspective. This is a you are an ally and I'm criticizing you because you are an ally and because we share the values that you are falling short of. You're absolutely right. This is not double standard unless your standard is the human rights record of Syria Lebanon, Turkey, Russia, China. That's not the standard. So we're we're 
first of all, our criticism is relatively mild. And secondly, it's justified. And on the symbolism versus significant policy action, the call from some quarters for sanctions, which I'm never clear on exactly what what we mean when we talk about sanctions, if we compare it to the Crimea example or to China or people talking about Magnitsky sanctions, that doesn't appear to be a helpful action if we are concerned about peace to me at least. But I understand the desire to find some answer to say, what can we call for? What, what, it, what can we do to respond to the current crisis and respond to the human rights concerns that we may have? The other measure that has been around in the media, part, I think because the NDP leader had raised it was ending arms trade with with Israel. When you actually looked at the numbers, it was like 13 and a half to $14 million of trade there. Insignificant, especially in the context of the 700 plus million that the US just recently arrived at, in addition to past deals. 3.8 billion a year they get from the US. 3.8 billion a year, right. So it, it seems again, like we'd be shooting our ourselves in the diplomatic foot, as it were, and we would remove ourselves from from some conversations if we went down these kinds of roads. But but I could have the wrong read as far as the real politic of it of it goes. In order to be constructive, it seems to me we have to, as you say, play a small role but supporting role alongside other countries. Are there though actions that you would say Canada should take in the short term? I mean, you've responded to sanctions. I don't know what your view is on on ending the arms trade with Israel. Obviously, it would be different if we could track a Canadian weapon to an attack in Gaza and the infliction of violence on civilians or or the the building that housed the Associated Press in Al Jazeera. I mean, if it, if there was some evidence of Canadian weapons being used in this way, we could have a really serious conversation about it. But it otherwise feels like symbolism. And others have pointed to opening up the Israel Free Trade Agreement and saying, well, we shouldn't actually preclude the demarcation of goods in a different way that are coming from occupied territories. Is there anything domestically that can be brought to bear from the Canadian perspective to answer this in the immediate term? Or is this longer term conversations and capacity building on the Palestinian side and continued advocacy and diplomacy with with the Israelis. Let's start at the back end. Don't be afraid to give money to UNRWA. Don't listen to those who claim that there's problems in the textbooks and therefore we can't give money to the one UN organization that's been trying for years to do something. They're not perfect. They're far from perfect. No UN organization is perfect. They're there. We have a relationship with them. You keep them on the straight and narrow. Uh, you, you make sure that they're transparent and you provide funding. And frankly, increase your funding to the extent that you can. The Middle East is, is not a priority for this government. It doesn't fit neatly into a feminist international development assistance. Uh, and I'm the president of Project Rosanna, which has been trying desperately to get some money from the government. And I can tell you that for sure. But that set that aside. I think there should be a clear demarcation between what comes from the West Bank and what comes from the rest of Israel. There's no question about it. If we oppose the occupation and we consider the settlements to be illegal, and there's wine or whatever coming from the settlements, it should not come. I don't even know where we are on that. But that should be a clear demarcation. On the arms, I don't know where those, what those arms are. I mean, in, in my kind of memory from when I was there, it's more intelligence-related, uh, strategic-related. You're right, it's, it's peanuts compared to what other people do. If Israel were to continue to stiff the international community or you know, really do a major expansion of, of settlements, I don't think it would be difficult to say, we know 
just say it right out in front. We know that this isn't going to make a difference, but we have to do something. But you don't have to go there now. Now, just get Garneau to speak to his European counterparts and come up with a balanced statement, which recognizes, as we all do, Israel's right to self-defense. And it's impossible. The, the question of, of proportionality in, in the law of war is very complex. And if somebody's sending 4,500 rockets your way, you've got a right to stop them, to try and stop them. And you're stupid if you bomb a building that has the AP and Al Jazeera in it, irrespective of what else is going on. You're just stupid. But, you know, it's, it's a very complex, it's like trying to fight a war in Manhattan, for God's sakes. It's about the same size and, and it's as dense. So in the last Gaza war, there was issues of proportionality. In this one, I don't really think it's a question of proportionality. If you're saying the underlying causes cause the rockets, that's one thing. But don't ignore the rockets and don't somehow claim that the bombing came out of nowhere. It's fair to say that it, we shouldn't both size it in the sense of suggesting there's equality. You, you've mentioned the asymmetry and the move from David to Goliath as it relates to Israel. We also shouldn't both size it because there are more than two sides in the sense that when you look at the Palestinian side of the equation, there are individuals in the Palestinian Authority and Palestinians who certainly don't abide by the reaction that Hamas has brought to bear and the 4,500 rockets that you describe and the indiscriminate nature of firing them. And, and obviously that should all be condemned and rightly so. But the Palestinian people writ large, the ones living in Gaza who are under the control of Hamas and the ones in the in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, it's, it's not them that's doing this. Exactly. And exactly. they shouldn't be punished. You've exactly. got to try and separate it. And you also have to attribute part of the problem to the Israelis themselves. So, and, and how do you, when you look at the longer term solution, this idea of, I've heard you speak about people to people activities and, and supporting those kinds of activities, that strikes me as really important because my own experience, limited as it is, in engaging with representatives from Israel is, it was actually the older generation of MKs that were more thoughtful or more open to peace. And the younger MKs were quite hardened in their views because this is all that they have known. Yeah. And I, I, I was naive in going into those conversations thinking, oh, younger representatives, that's where, that's where we'll find the engagement. And I was quite disappointed in my own naivete, but also just the reality. And when you look at the capacity building on the Palestinian side, elections loom large. This is what you hear from it's not completely fair to put it all back to say we don't have a, an honest partner to deal with, but there is some fairness to say, is there not worry that you know when we have an election that was put off, but that Hamas is going to play a larger role because they've been effective politically at taking advantage of, of this crisis, but, but others as well? Do you have a sense of how we go about building that capacity towards an election and supporting the Palestinian people in that in that sense of self-determination through representation? Yeah. I mean, it goes back to my larger point, which is in the bigger picture, three things have to happen. You need new leadership in both places. Mahmoud Abbas is 85. He is well-intentioned. He has recognized Israel. He supports a two-state solution. He has no credibility anymore on the street in the West Bank or in Gaza. I don't think that Hamas particularly has a huge amount of credibility either, but there were other candidates in that election, Marwan Barghouti, who's been in jail for 12 years, and a couple of others who have more credibility. And those combination of factors is probably why Abbas canceled them. So realistically, Bibi's got to go. 
Mahmoud Abbas has got to go. And then the two sides have to begin to own the issue. Israel has to begin to take trust building steps to show the Palestinians that there actually is a horizon if they can get their act together. That has been eliminated for 12 years. There's no reason for the Palestinians to do anything when a guy like Donald Trump comes in and gives every element of the negotiation to the Israelis, or when Bibi makes it clear. I mean, he actually said it in an election campaign. There will never be a Palestinian state while I'm the prime minister. He said it. I mean, he's got, I don't know how many cabinet ministers who live in the settlement. There's no lack of clarity here. So we have to change leadership. We have to take positive steps so that the Palestinians realize that there is a possibility of a two-state solution if they can get their act together. How do you deal with Hamas? It's hugely difficult. There's no question about it. But I believe that if you empowered a government in the West Bank and people in Gaza, who are now controlled by Hamas, began to see that Israel saw a real partner there and was beginning to ease restrictions, defend the Palestinians against the settlers, had stopped settlement expansion, were not expropriating territory in Jerusalem. Do four or five things. Just do four or five things and say, these are steps that we are taking because we believe that this can't go on forever. Then you, you get people, the narrative changes in Gaza. I mean, right now they are in an open prison. All this stuff about, you know, we left Gaza and they destroyed the greenhouses and, and Hamas, these terrorists were elected. Well, they, they won a legitimate election and then they were declared terrorists. They're being empowered to be the bad guys. So what you've got is Bibi on the one hand and Hamas on the other. Those are the two extremes here. How, how can you expect to, to make peace with, with the two extremes uh, basically controlling the agenda and actually feeding off each other? Neither of them want a two-state solution, so they're both happy they're there. And when we talk about peace and a two-state solution, there are those who don't want it for political ends or, or ideology. And there are others who I've spoken to recently who point to demographics to say everyone has long argued for a two-state solution. There are as many practical difficulties in delivering on that as there are in delivering on a one-state solution where individuals can coexist together and live peacefully beside one another with, with equal rights and dignity. And they point to demographic changes. And the number that jumped out at me was by 2030, it's estimated that Israel will be, the population will be 40% Arab. As far as the federal government in Canada goes, when we talk about solutions, do you think it, it continues to make sense to be prescriptive? Based on your comments in the course of this conversation, it sounds like you do. The two-state solution Absolutely. remains your goal. A one-state solution means the end of the Jewish state. And as a Jew myself, I couldn't support that. I mean, that's like saying the Irish. You know, I, I, I always, as I did in my, my radio, I, I hold up the, the, the Northern Ireland Accords as something that can happen. But I wouldn't suggest we integrate the two neighborhoods tomorrow. I wouldn't suggest we ask the, the you know, the Republicans and the, to move in beside each other, A, because it's just not possible right now. There's too much fear. There, there's, too, there's not enough trust. 
But more importantly, what you're really doing is you're sort of saying, to be honest, Israel really shouldn't have existed in the first place. This is no time for colonialism or ethno-nationalism or religious nationalism. Let's all live together. The only way Palestinians are really going to have their rights is if they have access to the whole land. Let's let all of the Palestinian refugees come back, 13 million of them in the diaspora. They're all entitled to come back. I mean, you know, nice idea, completely and totally unrealistic. Israel will never let it happen. And to my mind, they shouldn't let it happen. And I'm not one who says criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. But all you got to do is take a look at what's going on in France, the IFANA in Germany, Le Pen in France, Britain, Hungary, with the posters of Soros. There is anti-Semitism rampant. And Israel's contributing to it. And that's one of the reasons I'm so critical of Bibi. But for Israel not to be able to have a state, I mean, would you would you trust Syria, Lebanon, a different government in Egypt? If Israel's not careful, they could end up there because they're going to lose international support. But that's you know, 50 years away, long, long past your lifetime and mine. I, I tabled a petition on Sheikh Jarrah end of April, I suppose it was. And I guess in the last month or so, the shift in our inbox as a constituency office, as a, as a member of parliament's office, the correspondence we receive from people in our riding and across the country who aren't the same people that have written into us for the last six years on Israel-Palestine issues, because there are many of those people too. But this is, they are finite in number and they are, I recognize the names when they come in the inbox. Yeah. This is, this got much bigger and it, and it broke through in a way that many political issues mm. simply don't. And I wanted to make sure that message was heard loud and clear with my Israeli counterpart to say, mm-hmm. you have to know that the actions that you are taking are undermining the support for Israel. And it is undermining your security in the end. And I see it in my inbox right now that these are everyday Canadians who are going about their lives unconcerned about Israel-Palestine. And now Mm -hmm. in front of mine is Palestinian human rights and and they want Israel to change their practices. And and Israel cannot simply say, oh, we're doing a bad job of advocacy. That's pretty clear when you bomb a building with AP. But there's no amount of advocacy. And they've been talking about this since I was there. There's no amount of advocacy that changes. If you you think that's a problem, and it is a problem, they know what's going on in the Congress and with Democrats, and they they, they better know what's going on. But here's another thing. My daughter-in-law works at Accenture consulting firm. Last week, a la Black Lives Matter and a la the efforts to change the voting rules in Georgia, there were a number of emails circulating up to senior management to say, Take a stand on this. Israel, Palestine has become in the minds of some, and those are the people writing to you, adding to your signatures, a Black Lives Matter. Now, if if Israel, Palestine becomes something that is as clear as racism in the United States, Israel's in big trouble, real big trouble. Yeah, and, and that is the focus on occupation and this the, the new David and Goliath relationship in which Israel is is Goliath and the need for human rights. And in the Canadian context, we obviously have lived through the Black Lives Matter movement across North America. But I, I think also there's an understanding. We've had this Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as I say, imperfect progress, but there is a steady trajectory towards doing better yeah. and an improvement. 
And there isn't a sense of, well, we can just dismiss this. And, and even from conservatives, our, our further right parties here in Canada, they pay what some may say lip service, but, but they say, yes, we have to move forward with reconciliation. And, yeah. and so we don't have that far right sort of dismissal of, it, of the conversation no, entirely. No, no. And, and so we are at a place in Canada where people, I think, are looking critically at other places around the world, that anti-colonial lens and saying, this looks like something that should not exist. And how do we get out of this place back onto a path of peace? Because to your point, certainly the, the, the length of my political career, but beyond it, there's been no path towards peace at all. And your point is, is, is right on because what Canada has done is not solved the problem. We're not giving the land back, but it has shown to native Canadians that we're serious. We're far from perfect. We're, we, we've not eliminated systemic racism, but we are taking those trust building steps to try and show you that you are a real partner now, you, you have to be careful about being holier than thou with the Israelis, because they'll give you a hundred reasons why the Palestinians are not the indigenous. But I think a subtle combination of that, not in look how good we are, but rather taking steps, positive steps have changed the conversation and can change the conversation. The other thing is I, I would pick up on what we just talked about with Israelis when you talk to them and the government. Lisa Stadelbar, a new ambassador, and the government should pick up on, listen, what we are picking up in Canada and what you see what's going on in the U.S. in the Democratic Congress, it's not just Tlaibe, the Palestinian congresswoman. It's not just that. No. There is a change, and whether it's Black Lives Matter or that whole philosophy of anti-colonialism, Israel was created essentially as a colonial state. I mean, you, you just have to admit it. It was a Western creation at a time when the rest of the world was beginning to decolonialize. So while Africa and Asia were decolonializing through the 50s and 60s, Israel was, but Israel was the David. And it, you know, just generally, it, not in the Arab world, obviously, it was hated in the Arab world and, and in the Muslim world. But in the Western world, it was seen as, as, as what it is, in a sense, it was the savior of the Jewish people. But that narrative is long gone, and Israel's got to be aware of it. And that's the message that, you know, you, we liberals, or we, we the government, are afraid that uh, there's a tide here. And I'm not saying, you know, we're not saying you can't defend yourself. We're not saying Hamas isn't a problem. We're not saying the Palestinians. We're saying you've got to start doing something positive here, as opposed to sending your fascist MK into the heart of uh, Jerusalem or allowing that to happen. My last question is a, a more specific one to my role as a, I'm a one of 338 members of parliament. I've certainly used my voice by way of tabling a petition, certainly used my position to raise my voice with the, the government through Mark Garneau. And I've also used the platform that I have to engage with not only CJA and the coalition of Palestinian organizations in Canada, but also with the Palestinian and Israeli representatives in Canada. Outside of that, it seems continue that kind of engagement where I can, and then where the opportunity arises, or maybe seeking out opportunities. The other consideration I had in mind was building relationships with younger MKs or building relationships with younger Palestinian representatives, where to the extent I'm in this business for an extended period of time, those relationships can be potentially valuable in 
engaging in constructive conversation, but also in in pushing towards peace and limited role as it may be. But is there anything else you would recommend? No, no, important. I, I would definitely do that, reaching out to the conservatives and to the NDP uh, for sure. I have been, I don't know why, but I've been kind of amazed at how much response there's been to that Globe article. And so penning something that really, that, that speaks your mind, that, you know, you obviously got a deep understanding of this situation and, and the difficulties of it. And so penning something uh, where you're speaking your mind, be seen to be reaching out to the progressives, be seen to, to be saying, I'm not afraid to talk to Jews who love Israel, support the two-state solution, and are prepared to criticize it. And you know, I would encourage Palestinians that the Palestinians and the Arabs should be getting their act together. You know, and I've talked to to staffers on the 10th floor. And first of all, they're a relatively new community. And secondly, they're afraid of being labeled uh, anti-Semites. But they should be getting their act together and and demonstrating that they have a voice and they want the Canadian government to represent that voice. They're there are a lot of voters. So I think doing what you're doing is important. Hopefully there'll be a new Israeli ambassador at some point. Ohad's, you know, good guy, and uh, but they need an ambassador here. Yeah, reach out to Lisa to some extent, to the extent that you want to in, in Israel, and uh, just send her your views so that she knows that uh, there are people like you. And, and uh, you know, obviously, Yara, she's great. She's great. She's gutsy, and she's honest, and and, you know, she knows Israel better than any of us. So She does. And I, I actually, in some ways, take my cues because she knows this issue in and out. And she is also intensely committed, not to a defensive posture, but to a path towards peace. And she's really constructive on that front. Well, John, thanks for your time. And th- thanks for writing what you did in The Globe. And, and thanks for your your advocacy, really. And if there's any other time you want to run anything by me or other people in the community, please give me a call and uh, take care. As always, thanks for joining me on this episode. Yara, who we referred to, by the way, for those who aren't familiar, is Yara Sachs, the newer liberal MP for York Center. She's a dual citizen, both Canadian and Israeli. She's worked in Israel in the past. But like John, she shares a passion for human rights, and there's really no one in my caucus who has worked more diligently to ensure global affairs is seized with the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, as just one example of her advocacy. I did take John's advice, by the way, and though I have yet to pen anything of note, I did speak on the issue in the media with the CBC, and I was clear that there's an asymmetry to the conflict and that pressure needs to be brought to bear upon Israel to ensure that we don't see continued settlement expansion and that we do see greater concern around human rights. I also said that it's for the very reason that we hold up Israel as an ally, as a democracy with an independent judiciary that shares our values in relation to human rights. It's on those grounds that we ought to criticize Israel as a friend. With that, remember to subscribe and leave a positive review on your platform of choice, if of course you like what we're doing. Future guests will include public health expert Irfan Dalla and Minister Karina Gould, so do please keep listening. And otherwise, until next time.